again, because so many doctors just don't know about this, they see a patient who's underweight, who likely has an eating disorder. And their note in the chart was, I told the patient to eat, you know, and if it was that easy, we wouldn't have eating disorders. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. We get to talk with Dr. Mailer today, which is really exciting. I'm here with my medical co-host, Dr. Michaela Voss, and of course, Abby Brown, who is my regular co-host. And we had to separate this into two podcasts because there's so much information here. Have your pencils ready to take notes. There's a lot of acronyms and things that we didn't get to, and we thought about putting them into the show notes, but you're all professionals listening to this, and you will probably be resourceful if you want to be and find out what they are. So he says we break all the nutrition rules at acute and tells us a little bit about how dietitians are giving eight to 10 grams of protein per kilogram there and why. But very important for all of us, very low blood sugars, what we're seeing, what they're seeing. And then in part two, which like I said, we had to divide it. He talks about the DEXA scan and bone health and some new articles coming out and research as well as his fourth edition of his book, which we most of us all have. And if you don't have it, it's a good idea to get it or wait till the fourth edition comes out so that you'll have the most recent. Enjoy. We are here today with Dr. Phil Mailer from Acute, and we are beyond thrilled. Thank you for joining us for the seasoned RD, Dr. Mailer. Just to get things going here, Dr. Mailer, mountains or beach? Mountains. You like mountains better. You're in the mountains now, right? We are. We are in Denver, half hour away to the first mountains. Okay. And you have not always been in Denver. I have. I was born here. Oh, I did not know that because you have family in other parts of the country. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So my question for you is breakfast or dinner? It depends what city I'm in. (laughs) Tell me more. Well, if there's, you know, good breakfast places on the East Coast, then uh, I prefer breakfast to dinner. But uh, I think in general, probably dinner. What about your hometown of Denver? Good breakfast, better dinner. Better dinner, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Lots of good food out there. And I'm in Kansas City. Abby's in Dallas. Dr. Voss is in Kansas City. And you're in, in Colorado. So the last question is, Audiobook or paper book? Yeah, as Kelly could tell you, I'm pretty uh, challenged with anything new or IT, so I have no idea what you're asking me. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly is your assistant, and I love Kelly, so I get it. I'd be nowhere without Kelly. I, yeah, I, I, I feel like I would be too. 
Okay. Well, awesome. I wanted to kind of, for the newer people coming into the field, this is our medical series. The Seasoned RD is a podcast for all professionals in the field of eating disorders, nutrition, therapy, medical providers, physical therapists, occupational therapists, strength and conditioning, fitness professionals. Um, You have been a huge proponent of bringing all of those together. And so kind of to we're holding up like Dr. Mailer is you, you've accomplished so much that it's, you're almost untouchable. And what I would like to do is have you share a story of maybe a time that was funny or that you were worried about in either a board exam or something to help us see the human side of Dr. Mailer. You know, there's a lot of, I've had a wonderful career and I'm a lucky guy. And, uh, I got into the field of eating disorders totally by chance. Yeah, how did you? I worked at Denver Health, which is the city trauma center in Denver for years. Most of our population was indigent. And I joined Denver Health in 1984. I've been there for 37 years. I was chief of medicine in the 1990s. And then I became the CMO of the hospital and then ultimately ran the whole hospital for many years until I retired. It's an amazing place. and. Uh, it's been home for me. I've, I've never had another job. I retired from there about four years ago. And during that, those many years at Denver Health, I started the acute unit, which, as you know, is a very unique medical stabilization unit. It's 30-bed ICU for the most severe patients in the country. And many of them come by air ambulance from other hospitals. And when I was a junior attending at Denver Health in the mid-1980s, at the height of the AIDS epidemic, most of you don't remember that, and you're lucky. Uh, COVID-19 is rough, but HIV was probably rougher. We had no idea what to do with these patients. And they would come in and die a day or two later. Most of them were gay males. And uh, I was a junior attending at Denver Health, which is the old way of doing medicine, uh, which has unfortunately left us. But you had two residents and two interns and two students, and everybody was interested in learning. And there were no work hour restrictions and all these things. And uh, So I had a lot of HIV patients on my service. And that night, a 19-year-old with anorexia came in and I couldn't spell anorexia and never saw a patient in residency. I did two different residencies and never saw a patient with anorexia nervosa. I had no idea what to do with her. She had fainted at work. She died on our service three days later. I don't think we killed her, but I think we did nothing to help her because we had no idea. So I went into the literature to look at that time. This is in the late 1980s, uh, 87, I think. And there was nothing written, zero, zero written on the medical side. I was fascinated uh, by the contrast in the nutritional parameters between this young lady with anorexia nervosa restricting type and the HIV patients and how the HIV patients were highly catabolic and the anorexia patient wasn't and how the HIV patients were febrile and the anorexia patient wasn't and how their pulses were 130 and the anorexia patient's pulse was 30. And so I sort of tried to figure it out and there was nothing written. So I decided I'm going to try to make a contribution. And so, you know, 33 years later, I've written over 500 articles and many textbooks and have had a wonderful career. That's the serious side of things. The, the to answer your question directly, at the end of my first year of residency, you have to take boards, at least the way it used to be. I have no idea how it is now, but and it's really based on everything. It's it's family medicine, internal medicine, OB, psychiatry, it's surgery. And 
But the problem is, is that if you're in internal medicine, you know nothing about surgery. If you're in surgery, you know nothing about internal medicine. So we had a bet who would finish these boards first. And the goal was that you had four hours and the goal was to get out in less than an hour and go golfing. And uh, so we decided that what we're going to do is that if it's an internal medicine question, we try to answer it and figure it out. But if it was anything else, we would write just a letter. So my letter was C. So if it was a surgery question, I wouldn't look at the question. I just write C. And if it was a OB question, I would write C and we had a bet who would do the best. So I barely passed the boards because I got about a hundred percent on internal medicine, but I did poorly on everything else, except I did very well on OB for writing C for every OB questions. And in our group, I got the highest OB score, but I knew nothing about OB. So uh, that's, my, that's my board story for the day. <laughs> that <I> is awesome. <laughs> it would probably not work these days, but I love it. Yeah, I have no idea what they're doing these days. Huh? I'm glad you passed. That was my that was my question. Uh, yeah. Did you go golfing? Yeah, yeah, we went golfing. I was going to say, what was your golf score? Do you remember that one? <laughs> no, too many senior moments these days for me to remember. <laughs> When, when you said senior moments and you said that you retired and I was going to say that in quotes because oh. I've worked with you over the past few years and doing some of the core courses for certification and there's always that looming like when is Dr. Mailer going to truly retire? Yeah, <laughs> I, I uh, was going to retire back in uh, 2000, whatever it is, 15 or 16, I had had 30 years at Denver Health at that time, and I was a pretty tired guy, but a good friend of mine, Ken Weiner, who some of you know, uh, we've been buddies for over 30 years, and he said, I heard you retire from Denver Health. Why don't you join Eating Recovery Center? And mm-hmm. I said, well, I don't know, and he's a pretty persistent guy, so uh, yes. I, I joined Eating Recovery Center there, but my life is a lot easier than it used to be. I used to work 80, 90 hours a week running Denver Health and overseeing things. It's an amazing place. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful place because mm-hmm. it's great care to mm-hmm. everybody. And before Obamacare, you know, when people had no health insurance, uh, we were the place they would go. Uh, 50% of our patients had no payer source. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we barely got by every year. And our our profit margin was a rounding error for most big corporations. We barely kept the lights on, but it was an amazing run working with Ken a little bit after that, but mainly staying in acute has been a great opportunity for me to leave my legacy there on acute. And we now have a 30 bed unit. It's brand new. The hospital just built it for us and uh, we're full, we're fully staffed. And Mm -hmm. so it's a good time just for the record. I'm actually officially slowing down in about uh, 20 days. Finally, I'm going to be going down to uh, about 50% time. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Congratulations it's, to you. It'd be nice and uh, well I have, earned. I have nine grandkids. We're across the United States, and we'll visit them and uh, yeah. look forward to slowing down just a little bit. But I'll still be very involved in acute and yeah. uh, meet all the new patients. I'll still drive all the research there, but the day-to-day operations we put together a good team, and it allows me to slow down a little bit. So yeah, I just have to say how grateful I am that you did stumble across this field. And you get to leave that legacy for us, all of the research that you have done, you know, just starting to dig in. I loved how you said, you know, the HIV patient was catabolic. The anorexic patient was not. And all of these opposites that just didn't make sense 
those questions that you started with years and years and years ago are resulting in now a fourth addition to your medical complications of eating disorders that will be coming out and to the development of acute. And for those of you who don't know what acute is, I hope that you'll get a taste of it by the time we finish this conversation. It's truly amazing. And it started with maybe eight beds, Dr. Mailer. Two, two beds, and now we're up to 30. And it's not just eating disorders, it's malnutrition all around, but eating the most complicated of eating disorders cases, like he mentioned, is airlifted. No, no, it's an, it's an amazing place. Interestingly, from the, your perspective as an RD and just for the group's edification, I've known Beth, I think for, I don't know, five or seven years or so, and have utmost respect for her. She's done a great job when she was with iADEPT and really trying to concretize this whole issue of SEDS to give people, you know, distinction and honor that you've invested the time to become a specialist. So many doctors are um, really clueless about nutrition, almost dangerous. And um, I don't say this often, you know, I think internists are the kings of medicine, but the surgeons actually do a better job than the internists with nutrition, in my opinion. And I was lucky again to work at Denver Health where the surgery department there was very academic and was very interested in nutrition. So it's always been a fertile ground for that in trauma patients there, but we've done a lot of work with them over the years. And Beth has made uh, really innumerable contributions to this field and trying to promote uh, SEDS. I didn't know she was slowing down from IADEP, but I figured I'd use my connection with her to tried to get our two full-time occupational therapists and two full-time physical therapists at acute. We actually have a gym on the unit as well, because many of our patients come in, they can't lift their head off the bed. They have BMIs of seven and eight. And Beth was uh, thoughtful about my request to try to get them said certification. And the four people that work for us, the first ever in the United States, PT and OT to get said certification. And they're terrific. Uh, We published a lot of papers about weighted blankets and about sarcopenia and grip strain. They do a great job uh, on our unit. You're all welcome to visit now that the COVID restrictions have been lifted a little bit. We'll probably start our on-sites again, where we bring in about 10 or 12 professionals every quarter. And if you're here to ski, you won't have time to ski because we teach the whole time. It's not a sort of a BS CME course, but uh, we're going to be starting those again. And for people that want a full day of learning uh, about what we do on Acute. And Acute's an amazing place. And Started it as a two-bed unit with two staff, and we have 30 beds. It's a telemetry, full resuscitation, and we have a staff of about 220 full-time employees. Mm. We have eight hospitalists that help me. Two of them are family practitioners because we dropped our entry age. We used to do 18 and up. Now we do 15 and up. At the request of the uh, children's hospitals in America who send us patients, and then we have uh, five full-time SEDS uh, certified dietitians. You know some of them. Uh, Megan Foley is our lead dietitian. She's been with me now for almost 10 years. Uh, she's terrific. Mm-hmm. We have three full-time social workers, four full-time PhD psychologists, three psychiatrists, about 30 nurses, RNs, and about 90 CNAs because we have one-to-one supervision for meals to help the patients and so that they don't purge, lock bathrooms, et cetera. Yeah, it's an amazing place, and I've been fortunate to be associated with it and to have founded it, and we're very proud of it. 
So Acute is an amazing place, and if you've been listening for a while, you know that there are no advertisements on this podcast, and I did accept sponsorship from Acute because I believe in Acute, and I'm going to give you a little information. It is a center for our patients, our eating disorders and severe malnutrition. Acute is our partner in assessment, referral, and treatment for patients at risk for refeeding syndrome which is something we worry about as outpatient providers, right? Um, As well as those experiencing other dangerous medical complications of malnutrition, of purging, and excessive exercise. So remember, ACUTE is the only dedicated inpatient medical stabilization program in the country. It has the resources, the environment, the experience to treat those medically severe cases of eating disorders And, this is super important, the life-saving care is covered by medical insurance. That means that it preserves the valuable behavioral health benefits for patients as they continue the recovery process. So when they're medically stable, patients can discharge to the next level of care and then hopefully come back to you or whatever care team the referring program is. Everyone at ACUTE is overseen by Dr. Philip Mailer, who we're interviewing today. He's the world's leading expert in medical treatment of eating disorders. His expertise and experience and that of his team does matter when seeking medical care for a severe eating disorder. Truly amazing and that the first physical therapist seeds, when when Dr. Mailer is saying seeds, that CEDS, Certified Eating Disorder Specialist, in the country, in the world. And they were doing the same questioning that Dr. Mailer did back in the 80s when he was like, I, this doesn't make sense. So if you're a physical therapist, you're starting to ask those questions like, I don't know about eating disorders and how it affects my discipline, but I'm going to dig in and learn. And now we have all these people and all of this wonderful research. I think people were fooled a little bit because you know, they figure that the average person with an eating disorder is young. And so, you know, they're got, they're strong. There are no issues there. If you take a person with a BMI of eight or nine, who's 19 years old, and you put them on the floor, they will not be able to get off the floor when they come to acute. They're like a newborn colt. They have such severe proximal muscle weakness. And therefore, you know, as dietitians, often you have a rule where we don't like to ex- exceed two grams of protein per kilo of body weight. But in our patients, they're getting eight and 10 grams of protein per kilo of body weight, because when you weigh 20 kilos, (laughs) you you need to quickly exceed that. We we break all the rules on acute with regard to nutrition, grams of carbohydrate per kilo of body weight, et cetera, et cetera. But these people need it. And it's fascinating when you start to dig down with these physical therapists and how weak these people are and this sarcopenia, you all know about the sarcopenia of, of aging where older people have that and therefore they fall and unfortunately and break hips. Well, a 19 year old with anorexia who's got a BMI of 10, they have horrible sarcopenia as well. So the patients coming into acute are really sick and I imagine they also feel hopeless. What kind of advice do you give to your patients when they come in so ill and how do you instill hope? It's fascinating to sort of watch this, but the real thing of hope that you want to exude to your patients is, is that you have a curable illness. There's a lot of bad illnesses in life. And having worked at Denver Health for almost 40 years, I've seen them. And you can have horrible cancer and today you can get cured, but there's so many side effects from the chemo and the radiation. But with eating disorders, it doesn't leave a lot of scars in general. If you can get good treatment, 
if you have a mild or moderate eating disorder and you get into a good RD practice and you have a psychologist and an internist taking care of you or pediatrician, adolescent medicine, and you can get over it quickly, you can lead a normal life. I really try to give people hope that uh, we had a lady that was airlifted to us from the Cleveland Clinic in Florida. Our two biggest referral sources are the Cleveland Clinic and the Mayo Clinic because people go to these places with a litany of complaints. They have a million tests done and then they tell them, you must have an eating disorder. We can't find anything. You should go to Denver Acute. And we had a lady airlifted to us in July. I remember I was on call and the ER doc at the Cleveland Clinic, so this is not a third rate hospital, said, I have no idea what to do with this lady. She came in, she had a seizure at home. She had a sugar of four, a blood sugar of four. And and I said, well, we got to get her to Denver. We got to get her on an air ambulance, but we got to keep her alive tonight. And I said, put down an NG tube. That's the best way to treat hypoglycemia and anorexia. Hypoglycemia is a big concern for eating disorder patients. How do you recommend it be treated? People make a mistake and they give people glucose tabs and they give them orange juice. And that's not the way to do it because you get a paradoxical high insulin secretion rate and then further exacerbates this. So we believe the best way to treat it is to trickle in a little bit of tube feed at a slow rate for these people. Anyhow, the long and short of it was that this girl was very resistant to getting into care. She had wonderful parents. She wouldn't go anywhere. She was just staying in bed at home. When she came into the Cleveland Clinic, she had a four centimeter pressure ulcer on her back, very deep, had a very low sugar, as I mentioned, and uh, was delusional, having seizures after she got to Denver Health. And she just came back to visit us to say hello uh, about a week ago. It's amazing. What a What an amazing meeting that was to see her. Uh, and her main concern was, do you think I'll be able to have a baby someday? And I said, absolutely. There's no reason you won't. That's a myth that used to be out there that once you have anorexia, you can never have a baby, but that's, you know, absolutely BS. And so the, the satisfaction in this field where you're dealing with a horribly lethal illness, but one where you can actually get good care on the outpatient side, from new RD practices on the inpatient side, a place like acute, and then get over it, you can really lead a pretty normal life after that, except for a couple complications that seem to be more permanent. But we got to give our patients hope. This is a curable illness, and it's generally a young population. And oftentimes, these are very bright people, and you got to give them hope. It's a tough battle, but it's one that's surmountable. I love that you put that message out there, because Hope is one of those most important things and is definitely not on a prescription pad. So I think a lot of doctors need to hear that. I'm wondering, for those of us in the outpatient world, when you talk about hope and you talked about catching things early, what do you think the most important medical aspects would be for us to evaluate and try and keep them out of higher level of care? Is there one particular body system or overall aspect that you think is the most important? Well, you know, I tell people uh, I have a terrific relationship with RDs. I Once a week, I teach all the RDs at Acute and ERC in Denver. We review papers together for an hour and they all come and it's a great session. But I always tell people that food is medicine. Our pharmacy costs on Acute for critically ill patients are nominal because food is medicine. Weight restoration is the key. A safe weight restoration is the key. And my own feeling, I think some disagree with me, but my own feeling is, is as an outpatient, we should shoot for about a pound to a pound and a half a week of weight gain. On the inpatient side, we shoot for around four pounds a week. 
But weight restoration is the key. And I think that, again, because so many doctors just don't know about this, they see a patient who's underweight, who likely has an eating disorder. And their note in the chart was, I told the patient to eat, you know, and if it was that easy, we wouldn't have eating disorders. So they need to refer these people to RDs because you all are the, really the psychiatrist for these people. You're the, you're not simply filling out a menu, but you're supporting them during the process and trying to allay their fears. And as ARFID becomes a bigger issue, it's even more important. And as a typical anorexia nervosa becomes a bigger issue. It's even more important. There's a, a lot of dilemmas and conundrums how to refeed people like that. So I think one thing they need to focus on is understanding that you can't just tell people go eat. You got to involve the specialists. I'm a big believer, as Beth said early, in the multidisciplinary approach, and that's what we have at Acute. Everybody has a say. I started team meeting at Acute uh, over 20 years ago, and every Wednesday and Thursday we review every patient in detail with the entire team there. Mm -hmm. And everybody has a say and we do it in order. And after the MD gives their review, the next person that goes are the RDs because food is medicine and we have to hear from them. Okay. At acute, when you are re-nourishing patients, do you give everything by mouth or do you utilize other forms of nutrition like TPN? Uh, on acute, we can do any form of nutrition PO, uh, enteral, any form of enteral, NG, NJ, PEG, PEG. And then as Beth knows, I wrote the first paper in the world using TPN in anorexia back in the 80s, but I don't use it more than 10, 12 times a year. Very rare. It's not something we go to quickly. We have a patient on the unit right now who's got bad Crohn's disease, no eating disorder, very malnourished, close to death from her Crohn's disease, and they're willing to do a stem cell transplant for her at Stanford but they want her to have a BMI of 19 in order to get it. And so she's on TPN, enteral, and PO in order to get there. But uh, we believe that number one, it's PO, progressive oral is the way to go. So I think Dr. Voss, the answer to your question is recognizing the role of nutrition in this illness and that it's not as simple as saying, go eat. The second system that I think you really got to focus on is the sugar, the, the blood sugar. I have a paper coming out, which is entitled, Why Do Young Anorectics Die? This question has been out there for years. There was a paper published in the International Journal of Eating Disorders 20 years ago almost with the same title, and we're no closer to figuring it out. It's embarrassing. We don't know what kills these people. We know there's a higher rate of suicide in eating disorder patients, which contributes to the overall mortality rate, but eating disorders also have a lot of physical complications. So what do you think is causing deaths in patients with eating disorders from a medical perspective? There's a lot of theories out there, as you know. For years, we talked about QT interval and torsad uh, TDP, the, the arrhythmia. I think that that is not true. And I've been trying to debunk that myth. If you purge and your potassium low, you can get torsad and you can have arrhythmias. But inherently in anorexia, I don't believe QTC is prolonged. And we've published many papers on that based on huge studies. We just published a paper, 900 patients looking at their EKGs in restricting anorectics and their QT was normal. So I have this new model, which will be in the new book. I actually, if IADEP happens in the, in the winter, I think in February or March, if they actually have the meeting, I'll reveal the model there as well, but it'll be in my new book. And I believe that hypoglycemia is actually a big killer of anorexia, and we don't recognize it. 
So you hear these instances, oh, the patient came in the ER, sugar was 22, we gave him a liter of D5 and we sent him out. Uh, you probably killed the patient, actually. You did them no favor. For outpatient providers, if you see someone in your office that has a low blood sugar, your note in the chart should be, I called 911, not that I sent them home and I'll see you in two days. And I would recommend for all of you that do outpatient eating disorders that you keep a glucometer in your office. Because if you see someone that's got a sugar less than 60, you're playing with fire. It's a sinister thing. And as you well know, if you're a diabetic and your sugar falls, you feel bad. You get hungry, you sweat, you get tremulous, you get confused. There's a predictable constellation of symptoms that happens with low sugar in most people. In anorexia, it doesn't happen. You'll have somebody talking to you with a sugar of five. And five minutes later, they can be dead and having a seizure. And it's a new concept that's worth thinking about is this absence of neuroglycopenic symptoms in anorexia, that they don't have the typical hypoglycemic symptoms. So they have no warning and therefore they have seizures at home and die. And I think that that's an unrecognized cause of death in anorexia as I promote in this paper. I would also tell you that CGMs, which you're familiar with, these continuous glucose monitors that you put on the back of your arm, I think that that should become a new norm in people that have BMIs less than 14. A, it teaches them they have to eat and that they're hurting themselves if they don't. And B, it's going to give us information, which is going to be important to try to figure out this dilemma of why do people die with anorexia? And I think hypoglycemia is actually an unrecognized cause here. So I think sugar is a second system that we should be paying more attention to. And I think you all in the outpatient arena should be checking glucometers in your patients when they come in for visits. And if you have someone who surprisingly has a sugar of 40, get them to an ER and get them into a hospital because that means that their liver is failing. As you know well, we have an amazing ability to produce glucose through gluconeogenesis and then through glycogenolysis, but those are out in anorexia. You have no stores in your liver, they're gone. So what do you rely on? You rely on a little bit of food you're eating. The other mistake people make is they give people food for low sugars that have a high glycemic index. That's exactly what you don't wanna do again because you stimulate insulin. There was a paper published from Japan recently that showed that paradoxically, uh, what Beth referred to before that we just, anorexia doesn't follow the rules that it should. Uh, that in anorexia nervosa, GLP-1 levels are high. That makes no sense because GLP-1 facilitates insulin release. So why the heck would you want high levels in anorexia to lower the sugar further? You're familiar with PYY, the gut hormone that gets released to tell you when you're satiated, you shouldn't eat anymore. Well, the weird thing is, is that PYY levels are high in anorexia makes no sense. So we're telling you to eat, but you have no appetite because your PYY level is telling you that you've eaten enough. You have all probably heard of Dr. Cynthia Bulick. She's a big name and she's a very formidable woman, uh, notwithstanding her short stature. She's a, she's a tough lady. I've sat on many panels with her and I think I saw her drop her first cuss word ever. We were sitting up there on a panel and 
Somebody asked her a question that irritated her, and she mumbled under her breath. I said, whoa. I wish I would have heard that. I said, go, go for it. Go for <laughs> it. But we just published a paper that I'd call your attention to. It just came out about 45 days ago. We've gotten amazing feedback about it. The, the title of the paper is that anorexia nervosa is not a psychiatric illness, but it's a metabolo-psychiatric illness. And we believe that uh, we've underestimated the role of metabolism in anorexia, which is good for the dietitians on the call. You're, you're familiar with ghrelin. Ghrelin levels are very high in anorexia. Like there's, and why would that be? If that's stimulating appetite, why should it be high? You should be responding to it. And the answer is there's resistance to it. So you're trying to gain weight, but you have resistance to the hormone that's supposed to give you an appetite. Doesn't make sense. A lot of the adiponectins, there's research in them looking at what their role is now. Why would the body put out too much insulin to lower the sugar further? And I have another paper coming out. It's the largest series ever looking at uric acid levels in anorexia nervosa. And you'd ask me like, you know, you're, you're an old mailer and you're getting more and more demented. Why are you looking at uric acid and eating disorders? Well, it turns out that Uric acid is actually related, high uric acid levels are related to impulsivity and anxiety. And they're also related to foraging behaviors in animals. And so it's fascinating to think like in anorexia, is there some aberration or abnormality in uric acid metabolism that's causing these patients not to forage and not to try to survive? And so there's so much going on in eating disorders right now that are exciting but the message is metabolism is very screwed up. And so we have to pay more attention to, to glucose. I think a third body system that all providers, inpatient and outpatient, should be thinking about are the bones. Unfortunately, the bones are one of the body systems that may not totally recover, even if you recover from your anorexia. And remember, it affects ANBP and ANR. And more and more studies are coming out that the fracture risk long-term after anorexia nervosa is very, very high. And so whether you're a dietitian, social worker, psychologist, psychiatrist, adolescent medicine doctor, I implore you and I adjure you to order a DEXA on your patients. If they haven't had one or they can't remember when their last one was, get one. And even if they're 16 years old, get one. Dr. Mailer, you described how the body doesn't work as we would expect it to in these patients, and they often present looking and acting like normal. So how do you convince your patients that they are as sick as they are when they feel just fine? A is Arnie Anderson, who sort of got me interested uh, a bit in, in publishing my first book. We were at an academy meeting in the 90s in New York, and he cornered me. And he says, we really need a book on the medical things in this field. And as you know, he's been my co-editor of, uh, of the book, including the fourth edition. Uh, I wasn't going to do a fourth edition. I was going to wimp out when Hopkins Press asked me to do it. <laughs> and uh, they asked him before me, and he said yes. And he's a, a bit older now. I figure, how the hell can I decline if he's agreed to do it? So I, I did it. And uh, Arnie always says, show your patients objective evidence of their illness. Don't just talk in abstract terms. Mm -hmm. Show them their results of their DEXA scan. Show them the results of their CBC. Show them the results of their liver tests. Show them the results of their echo if it's abnormal. Show them their EKG. And so DEXA scans have that 
advantage that you get to show them objectively, you have the bones of an 80 year old and you're 18, something wrong here. The second reason it's good to show it to them that if they're lucky enough and it isn't that abnormal, you can tell them if you get on top of this now, it'll stay normal, it won't go worse. So that's another reason to get better. But most importantly, this permanent damage that they cause, if they have osteoporosis, we have to treat them. I'm a believer we should be treating young teenagers with this. I, uh, Dr. Voss, if you're adolescent medicine, I don't know, but I know a lot of the pediatricians think I'm nuts, but if this was my daughter, this is what I would do. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.